0: Hi everyone, my name is Valerie and I'm Marin. and welcome to The Modern Idealist, a podcast for career-driven professionals looking to make an impact. On this episode, we bring on a guest, Ivan Fleeflat. He is a friend and is currently the head of environmental initiatives at the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. It is a highly regarded and influential organization. As it stands today, it is the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. This sovereign wealth fund has gained its respect globally over the decades as its goal as stated on their website, is to ensure responsible and long-term management of the revenue from Norwegian oil and gas resources to safeguard and benefit its people. Today, the fund continues their growth with long-term visions, and we'll get to hear a little bit more about that from Ivan from the environmental perspective. Furthermore, we sit down with him to talk about our similar experience of reaching disillusionment from working within corporate strategy
1: and sustainability. So, first off, our podcast is all about impact career trade offs. We love that word trade offs. It's about how one finds growth (laughs) along the way. And more importantly, the narratives we tell ourselves to navigate that space or those spaces. So, of course, I mean, it looks very different depending on your goals. Uh, recently, Valerie and I have been thinking more about, you know, the different life stages. A lot of our friends are establishing young families. We're all setting the foundational grounds of our professional lives, our financial lives. And one of the things that we've talked about on the podcast is we promise to bring on different perspectives. You know, some of our listeners are in the non-for-profit change-making space, while others are in commercially driven change-making spaces too.
0: I would say that we find ourselves deep in the commercially driven aspect of change making, and we believe in the power of that when it comes to impact and sustainability. Ivan is very competent on both aspects to speak just to that and he's one of my most reflected friends I know. Uh, He's been through quite the exploration himself as a change maker and an impact doer.
1: Mm. Ivan currently leads the environmental initiatives teams at the Corporate Governance Department of Norges Bank Investment Management. So let's just call it NBIM because I'm going to mess it up. (laughs) So it's informally the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, which owns on average 1.3% of all the world's listed companies. Uh, He's responsible for developing and communicating the fund's expectations on topics such as climate change, biodiversity to the companies it's invested in. So before joining NBIM, Ivan worked with Strategy and Sustainability at the Waste Management Company, Norse Javining. <laughs> I've lived here for it. five years. <laughs> I think you didn't really. <laughs> I really need to practice my Norwegian. Sorry, Ivan. Um, and he was also a consultant uh, for McKinsey & Co., He holds a double master's degree in finance and sustainable development from HEC Paris and the Norwegian School of Economics and he's based here in Oslo with us.
0: Welcome Ivan, what a treat it is to have you on. Uh, Just a personal note to our listeners, uh, on your current life status, you are currently on paternity leave, right? How has that been?
2: Thanks very much for having me on, um, Valerie. It's quite a treat also for me to join. I am very excited about this conversation. So yes, I am on parental leave. I've been that for a couple of months and it's very, very nice. It's very busy and much more busy than I expected, but it's a different kind of busy than what I'm used to at work. But uh, it really is a joy to be able to spend quite a amount of time with my little daughter.
0: How fantastic is it? I think especially as an immigrant, Uh, in Norway, I think it's just fantastic that, you know, there's this kind of system for young families, and even more so for progression of social causes, like gender equality. And I think it's just fascinating to see how it's just norm that both parents take it and now you're on your turn so speaking of Norway and progression <laughs> there's also its position on the environmental and climate side of things uh, which Norway is really trying to take lead in internationally for your case you've seen a bit of that from this active owner side of things right as the owner of or 1.3 percent of the world's largest companies for a lot of our listeners who are very interested in the power of wealth funds and in particular the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, given the context and the setup of the fund. And I know that you guys are trying to be mindful of certain ethical principles such as climate change and biodiversity. What can you tell us about how the fund works with environmental initiatives and maybe what you do there?
2: Yeah, sure. So maybe to start at the top, you know, the, the fund's we manage this on behalf of the Ministry of Finance, according to mandate the mandate that they've given us, which is then anchored in, in Parliament around once a year. So it's a um, politically decided mandate, and we try to safeguard and build financial wealth for future generations of Norwegians. That is really the main goal, but a large part of the mandate is about responsible investment and how we can do this in a responsible and ethical manner. And typically we say that there are three ways which we do this. The first way is to try to affect the whole market. So we develop views and expectations on topics such as climate change or biodiversity, water, ocean sustainability, um, or other topics such as board composition, CEO pay, which we've been in the media about these last, uh, last days. And we communicate that to the market. We communicate that to standard setters, to the European Commission, to the SEC um, and to to others and try to influence the whole market to adopt sustainable business practices. Secondly, we work uh, with our own portfolio, uh, trying to find out where the risks are and reduce the risks, um, financial and sustainability risks. Um, Often they overlap uh, where we can. And there's a lot of monitoring going on there. Um, and uh, we have certain risk-based divestments. In parallel, we have something we, called, we call the ethical exclusions. So Parliament has laid down a set of ethical guidelines which says what we can and cannot invest in. So it's certain types of products um, are excluded from our fund. so we don't invest in a companies that create or support the development of cluster munitions, nuclear weapons, tobacco, etc. And there's also some conduct criteria. So if companies breach and have or have gross violations of human rights or severe environmental damage, they can also be excluded following a recommendation from a separate council on ethics. So we have divest from certain companies, both sort of on a risk basis and on an ethical basis. And then our third leg is how we work with individual companies. So mm. our portfolio managers take, make their own investment decisions also taking into account the system built risks. And then we have what we do as well, which is the dialogue with the companies, right? Talk to companies, we have around 3000 company meetings every year. We talk about ESG topics in 50, 60% of those meetings. And then we communicate what we expect of these companies, right? So we have access to and meet with the leadership of the world's largest companies and communicate what we think are relevant principles these are expectations, they're a starting point for a dialogue. It's not that everybody agrees with us and we respect that. We are a minority shareholder, mm-hmm. but it really is one of the main things that that's uh, one of the ways that we can influence uh, these companies. And so that's what I do. We, we develop these expectations and then we follow them up by meeting with the companies and talking with them, sending them letters and emails, voting at the general assemblies, at shareholder resolutions, etc
0: where's your day-to-day in all of this or before your paternity
2: <laughs> yeah it's a bit different now but it used to be you know maybe three to four company meetings in a week that where we agree on the agenda together with uh, portfolio managers and others who might have an, an interest in the company um, and then we, we run those meetings, we vote at the general assemblies. So there might be a shareholder resolution on climate-related topic or plastic-related topic at an American company. And then we have to see whether we want to support that shareholder resolution or not. And that requires some detailed analysis and discussion internally before we agree and publish that on our webpage, what we're going to be voting.
1: It's just- So fascinating to be able to work in an area where you can make so much impact. I mean, in terms of owning 1.3%, you know, is uh, able to talk to organizations and and be leaders in areas like CEO pay. I mean, I'd love to just hear about that in general. I think a lot of our listeners are very corporate idealists in a way or corporate hippies. I know that's something that you've talked about, Ivan, as well. But uh, could you tell us a little bit about this, um, you know, the CEO pay and just what it's like being a part of an organization where you can really genuinely make waves to such an enormous extent?
2: Well, first of all, I think I feel very privileged to be allowed to work in this place, both for being allowed to take care of all this money on behalf of future Norwegians. It's a lot of trust that's placed in that, right? It's a savings for our country. But uh, with that, there is some influence in these companies that we invest in abroad. And we try to exercise that influence and power cautiously and prudently and in line with our, our goals, right? And it requires a lot of thinking and discussing and good principles to be able to, you know, stand firm with these companies over time, you know, we're long term investors for decades, and we want to have good relations with them as well. And so we really need to be well thought through and well considered. And but there's so many interesting topics that we need to have a view on. And it's it's just uh, it's a joy, you know, to be able to deep dive into these and to develop our thinking on, you know, I work more on climate change, but our department also considers uh, how should we pay CEOs, you know, and what should our views be on that? And should we uh, oppose the pay packages if they're too large or uh, should we just oppose them if they're structured in the wrong way?
1: I just love that. Because Norway and, and the Nordics, for people who haven't sort of had any exposure of the the Nordic, especially Nordic way of leadership, I was doing a talk about that the other day and, and this very egalitarian sense of leadership and equality and you know, having much more, the, there's much more emphasis on what's fair and equitable and that's something that I think is very different to the US and and Australia. I know this is kind of segueing, but, you know, we have this expectation if you're at the very top of a big, especially corporate organisation, that you get paid these enormous packages while the people at the bottom, you know, they basically need to take on another job in order to, you know, have a certain quality of life. And that's one of the things that I really love about you know the, this Nordic style of, of business that there is a more fair and equitable
2: spread. So just to interject, we we are um, of course aware that we're investing abroad in countries that have a different model than than perhaps the Norwegian uh, model of um, CEO and so we face situations which we wouldn't face in Norway. But we're quite uh, quite cautious about not exporting Norwegian values. That's not what we're there to do either, right? We are to be a financial investor and and make money but also to make sure that there is some minimum level of responsible business conduct and uh, to retain corporate greed or not retain but restrict corporate greed uh, if we can
0: Hmm, very interesting i understand these are big considerations and you know in a lot of countries that i think we have listeners uh tuning in from from Europe, US, Australia, and some from South America, actually, we have quite a base there. And you see that these are really big considerations for people and their values. And um, the way that it's showing up these days from, you know, pragmatic practices to some taking it to the streets, it's really showing up in different ways. And so I think the, the backstory and the mindfulness of the fund on this stance uh, to be socially responsible is a very interesting perspective for a lot of our listeners. But I just want to move on to um, another aspect or a real treat of today. You know, We really want to get to know you, Ivan, because you got here or to your position through sort of a winding road of different jobs and different roles. And you got to know yourself better, I, I understand, in this journey. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about how look that journey was for you and how did you stumble or planned to get into this field of sustainability impact climate
2: work Yeah, it's an interesting question i think when we look back or whenever you write a job application you always make it look like a straight line right you create this beautiful narrative of a straight line that this is always how it's meant to be but it's it's always a bit by chance and a bit by choice right there's so many things in life so I got into this by chance. I was uh, in a French club at my school and we traveled to Paris and we visited some companies and schools. And we, when we came to HEC Paris, which was then or maybe still is the best business school in Europe, they told us about this double degree program where you could learn about sustainability at, uh, in Paris and then you know, do my finance um, specialization in Norway. And I convinced myself that that was exactly what I had been wanting to do all along. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I've always been an empathetic person, I choose to believe, right? But uh, maybe I, you know, I don't know to what extent I had actually thought of this before I heard about this opportunity. But I convinced myself and the people who admitted me to the course. So I guess that was, it was convincing enough. And I found it really, really inter- interesting. And, you know, one year at a campus outside of Paris, learning about sustainable business models and... Um, sustainable design the geopolitics of oil and and all these very interesting topics and then when i went into consulting at mckinsey after that i had this in the back of my mind and tried to get close to projects that touched on these topics and these issues right it's not always easy as a young consultant to define that in the way that you want right the the projects are what they are you're not the one who decides what comes up (laughs) (laughs) and um um, there was a lot of other things I did as well, but I, I managed to do a couple of very interesting sustainability projects uh, during my time at McKinsey. You know, sustainability strategy for an oil and gas company. You know, some people might see that as an oxymoron, but it's, it was very interesting. Um, or sustainable hydropower, um, innovative financing for rainforests preservation. Lots of, of tastes of many small, cool sustainability projects. But, um, you know, the consulting life is, uh, for me at least, it was enough with a couple of years. Um, I wanted to have a a slightly normal life as well. And uh, when my wife moved here to Norway, we, or I, uh, found out it was time to, to move on. And there was this great opportunity in a company that was designed for sustainability which was this waste management company and i had the opportunity to join their strategy and their sustainability departments given that for this company strategy was sustainability and sustainability was strategy they it was just one department and i got to help you know develop circular business models and that's um was when i realized that you know the theory of sustainability is very different than the practice of sustainability yeah and um uh, we, we can touch upon some of this later as well right but it's it's very different to think about conceptually what is circular economy and practically how do you get this partner to sign this contract and do you want a wheel loader made by volvo or by caterpillar you know it's it's a completely different world
1: yeah because when you're talking about circular economies it's like you see pictures and diagrams and you talk about it in organizations and you strategize and to you know it it's like okay it's easy this is how you do it from a visual perspective but you know all the tiny details along the value chain or the supply chains that's where it becomes like you said there's there's so many details and so many moving parts that you have to make work and so many organizations people um approaches that you need to take into consideration so I think that's super interesting can you tell us a bit like how you know you talk about from the theory to the practice what were some of the big challenges or opportunities there
0: yeah what was a concrete moment for you that was like this is not this is you know that oxymoron that you talked
2: about I think there is many many moments right I, I remember coming in thinking like oh but we should make an uber for trash you know so you should be able to take a picture of your trash and then we'll come pick it up and and pay you for it we will give you a price based on the picture based on some ai solution right and and it's not that people hadn't thought these thoughts before it's just that it's way too complex to create right you just um there's there just wasn't money to be made from doing that. And it would be way too difficult to, to create. And we had some, uh, some other uh, projects around you know, uh, recycling food wastes, which were, were it turned out that the machines just didn't work, right? And uh, it was great ideas, but it just didn't work in practice. And the, the main project that I followed over time was uh, a gypsum recycling factory which we helped, uh, which we uh, got up and running uh, where they finished it after I left. And it's fascinating that you, you know, I spent a lot more time on on the details of finding partners and locking in prices and, and making sure that there was electricity close, enough electricity close to the plant that we we're going to build and not on diagrams and nice PowerPoints to the leader group, right? Which was mm-hmm. what I thought I would be doing, that I just needed to think of the solution and draw a chart and then... It sort of happen by itself.
1: (laughs) I totally understand that (laughs) because, I mean, when you're someone who really likes working on the strategy as well and you get motivated by, as you said, you're coming up with these ideas and, you know, the execution of, you know, kind of it's like, oh, can someone else do that or, you know, (laughs) someone else make it happen. So really uh, get what you're saying in terms of just thinking that picture should come to life.
2: Early on in the career, I was really convinced that the value lay in the thoughts, you know, in the ideas, in the conceptualizations, and then the, the implementation. That was just anybody could do that, you know. That was just get it done. But it's uh, you know I've really learned that having good implementers, executioners, mm, people who mm-hmm. get stuff done. I mean, I. I'm unsure to what extent I am that person, right? But I, I mean, hats off. It's uh, It really is challenging and it's a very, very necessary skill to get any sustainability strategy or other strategy done, right?
1: Mm. Absolutely.
0: The translation between the strategy and the implementation is often so different. And it's, I think I still work with so many uh, strategists, if you will, like, or more on that side. And it's about the planning. It's about the... The, the perfect modeling of the business and, and etc and when you get down to doing it um it still doesn't always translate and and i've been sitting here wondering like you know who's interested in doing which part and which between this strategy and implementation where's the the, the talent for it because we sense that in the you know talent group people want to make a change but Sometimes you sit there wondering, where do I do that?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think many in our generation kind of used to getting <laughs> things done for us. We haven't had to fight as much as, as previous generations, right? We've been mm. given grades, or at least the, the circles that we're in, we're privileged enough to have been given great education and, and whatnot. And and so, yeah, maybe maybe some of us, you know, don't have the drive and the, and the talent for implementation. And that's, uh, that's something that we're lacking. But I, I do think there are other constraints as well, right? That when plans meet reality, it's not just the, the talent that's lacking. Often it's, there's complexity, there's money lacking, there is um, mm-hmm. time. There are suddenly competing priorities, which might be very, very legitimate, right? And when I worked at, at Norsk Jönwinning, the whole leader group was very on board with the circular economy models. They'd all read up on the theory. The owners were on board. There was this Harvard School professor who had made a case study about the company, and everybody wanted to get this done. But then, at the end of the day, you know, if you have uh, price squeezes on on both sides of your value chain, and if you need to do internal restructurings, um, if you need to do some cost cutting, if you, you know, if you're in a difficult competitive environment, you know, it's not the the talent or the will it's really just so much other stuff going on that there is just not always capacity and and it's difficult to be the guy then saying oh but this is actually more important than all of that because you recognize when you're in it that all of that other stuff is also very important for the the health of the business.
1: Ivan would you also say there's some kind of because I know when I'm you know running workshops for different clients and they're thinking about you know, shifting the value chain in some way or another. I think part of it comes down to how well they actually know what's going on on the ground too. So yeah, completely uh, agree that it's a resource and priority issue. But then I think sometimes there's a disconnect between what's going on on the ground and then people in the in the headquarters looking at and saying, and those two things aren't necessarily communicating. The best way to have that outcome
2: i think i can recognize some of that from from what i've seen i don't know how general it is but i think it's definitely something that i've i've seen both in consulting and and in business and i think the great leaders are the ones that are very much in touch with what's going on on the on the factory floor right and know Mm -hmm. what the customers want and are in tune with the day-to-day machinations of the business and not only with the headquarter intrigues. Mm,
1: I just want to go back to one thing that you said. You talked about when you were consulting and you worked in gas and oil on a sustainability project and you talked about this kind of oxymoron. And I think that's something, you know, Valerie and I had, um, one of our podcasts was we did these kind of dating cards and we asked each other questions and one of them was like, would you get paid over 200,000 US dollars to work in, you know, some big oil company and, you know, we were talking about this kind of, would you compromise your values in one way to get money to do something impactful on the other side? So we're talking about these oxymorons. And I think even, you know, a lot of people, they mightn't even be in something that's not so impactful, but they feel that oxymoron. How was that for you? Because you said you made the shift after a couple of years. So what was it like working on projects like that? Did you struggle with that, you know, trying to do good and having these constraints in certain, in this context? What was it like?
2: I think I've been lucky enough to not feel like I'm compromising my values in what I'm doing. I think if I felt that I was doing bad for the people and for planets through my work, I think that's a a very difficult situation to stay in a job when your own values really just clinch with with what you're doing but of course you always have these thoughts what does this lead to and what is the greater good um but i'm i think i've been a bit fortunate in that that uh, i haven't you know people have different thresholds right and people have different views on say the oil and gas industry or i think one of the my favorite ones is the hydropower industry where some people, when we worked on sustainable hydropower, where some people might think that that is a tautology, and others think it's an oxymoron, and it's just these completely different views on, on is this good or bad, you know, and it just depends on which values you weigh higher in your own sort of internal compass.
0: Mm. Mm. Would you call yourself? Uh, you know, we kind of touched on this before, because our podcast is modern idealist, and in that way, it's kind of this living oxymoron in each of us. But uh, you mentioned that perhaps you would call yourself another than yeah.
2: idealist. Um, so I, I mean, I definitely have ideals, right? But I, I'm uncertain to what extent you can remain an idealist for much of your life and whether it's healthy for your career and your, your well-being. Um, so after reflecting a bit on your podcast, you know, listening to the op- episodes, I, I figured that I would call myself a idealistic pragmatist, you know, mm. and just accept that, you know, there's not everything I can do. I choose to join organizations where I feel like I can align with the mission and I feel loyal to the mission that they're working with, especially now at, at the fund, right? And then I try to bring some ideals into how things are done and try to make the organizations better through injecting some sustainable business practices or use on sustainability. And it's it's just so easy to get burned out, you know, if you're the one idealist or activist in an organization carrying the weight of all the impact that organization has on your shoulders and thinking that you're the one who needs to save that organization. It's, um, it's untenable in the long run. And I think that people will either get you know, pushed out and be unsuccessful or they'll be get burned out and finally get in the company line again and be a bit disillusioned. And there there should be some, hopefully, some middle ground.
1: But surely there's been a point in your career where you have felt a bit like that, where you've thought, okay, this is where I really want to make a change. And, you know, maybe you've been pushing an elephant up a hill. Like, you, how did you get to that point where you've been able to be this prag pragmatic idealist or I- idealistic pragmatist. <laughs> it? Surely. Mm, like I want to hear the story of where you were like, fuck this shit. you know? <laughs> Maybe you don't have it, but I know I, I, yeah. I think um, so. we, we talked about this before of, I feel like I, some, sometimes, you know, I show up my whole self in situations and yeah, you know, for me as a consultant, yes, you have to dance with the client, but I want to bring a lot of these parts of myself in because it fuels that passion and i feel like it creates change but as you said sometimes it's not tenable because you just get so exhausted but yeah i'd love to know how you went from you know maybe had that kind of experience in a different way and then came to this realization
2: i think it's just having um, failed and succeeded enough times uh, and gotten some perspectives you know when especially in consulting, when I was in it all the time, every project felt like this is it. You know, this is hugely important. And if this slide is good or bad, it really makes a huge difference. (laughs) Right? But I I think I have started to find uh, some, some comfort in my own insignificance that Generally, for most of us, we we do have an impact. Of course, we do. We can make a difference, but it's uh, there's always a day tomorrow, and we we need to have the energy to fight another fight. And if you let that elephant that you've pushed up the hill roll over you once it gets pushed down, then you're squished, I suppose. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: I I love that uh, reflection. It, very interesting to hear you say it like that. I mean, what was it that you said? to kind of realize our own insignificance and in my head that is as true as how significant we are and I feel like on the latter we focus more on that right like we, we focus a lot more on how much we have a significance on empowering ourselves but at the same time sometimes I've been thinking like we have this hero mechanism about us sometimes where where we think we can do so much and that uh, one thing is that like I think it's very irresponsible to overthink that to the point where you just do what everybody else is doing Uh, as in to to perpetuate what's already existing but at the same time like to accept and swallow that we are insignificant is maybe something for me to, to think about.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm a narcissist, narcissist by any means. I don't know if I'm ready to uh, accept my own insignificance, but I also get that when you do that, I mean, as you get older, I guess, and you reflect on life, you become less concerned of what people think, and you kind of can see yourself as, you know, from outer space or even from an airplane as the tiny speck in, in the world that we are. Um, and I think sometimes that, that embracing of insignificance in some way or another helps you say, well, what do I really want to do with my life? And then this kind of leads to not giving a fuck and then, you know, wanting to make change because that's what you want to do, you know? And I think, so there, there are really positive sides of reflecting on our insignificance in a way. And it maybe it makes us reprioritize things in a sense.
2: I think that's very interesting, Maren. And, no, you know, I, by all means, we're not insignificant. And if you fully accept that, you know, you don't know. I don't even want to think where that path leads down. Right? But, <laughs> um, well, apparently
1: I'm a narcissist, according to <laughs> Valerie, so it doesn't matter anyway.
2: <laughs> I think it's, it's also fine sometimes to just accept that, you know, we're in this space because we want to make, or we f- we feel like it's good to make a change, right? But we also have to take care of ourselves and our families in order to be able to make that change for our, the rest of our careers. And there have definitely been situations where I've, you know, done something which I felt was big. You know, I've written some policy document at work, and we've published it, and then. You know, nothing happens. You know, the world doesn't change just because I wrote a document and we said that saving the oceans is is can be important. Right? There's a media buzz, and then then nothing happens. You think right? so? I think we all also need some not just like I don't care, but also some beliefs that even if you don't see the results immediately, um you have to sort of believe that over time things do improve and that's that is also some comfort right when you see that elephant rolling down there the 15th time that well you know maybe some of that stayed maybe we got won some small victories even if we didn't win the big one this time Mm,
1: I like that thinking about the fruits of your labor paying off over time I mean that's certainly uh, a collective effort it's not you know we the three of us were talking about the God complex and how it's a bit in in us, Australian culture, some other cultures as well. We kind of think, okay, where the the godlike, entity that can take on whatever it is as individuals and <laughs> if, if we
0: use that to peg our uh you know beliefs merit, i believe i'm the bigger narcissist here it's a competition it is on i'm the american
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is a competition now okay
1: <laughs> yeah but it, you know, I think... um,
2: and you sort of have to have that belief i think especially if you're in the sustainability space but you're a bit removed from the impact on the ground right so when I was working in Nilskjönen, we were actually building a factory that recycles stuff. And we're going to recycle, you know, thousands of tons more than what was the case before. You know, that that's real impact. But the day-to-day work was, you know, we need a flat asphalt space and we need the right machines. So the work itself wasn't about sustainability, in my mind. You know, for sustainability to be successful, for sustainable business to be successful sustainability has to be embedded in every business operation and that mm. means that the people who are doing that work the actual are the ones who just have this as their regular day-to-day job who are then embedding sustainability into those decisions mm. it's not the sustainability professionals you know sitting in headquarters or um, the active ownership um, people like myself who I think, can claim the credit for that impact, right? I think it is the people who do the work at the end of the day who aren't sustainability professionals, but who just sort of make that part of, um, take those considerations. But because we're so removed from it, we, we don't get to see it on a day-to-day basis. We can see that sort of the, the market is moving, but I can't say, like, how have I contributed to that? And so I, you need to have some belief that it's... Um, that there is this connection, right? That you're supporting the greater good in some ways, even if you don't get to see the factory uh, that you've created.
0: I really appreciate these insights that you're giving because it's it's a different approach than how I think Marin and I have been looking at it where we're trying to, you know, in, when we come into something where it seems like it's just business as usual and we just see this everyday turn of the the, the normal engine, and I, I'm not sure. Maybe there's some somebody making that change in the company, but and you can kind of believe it, but sometimes if I don't see it, it's just like over time, um, I think a lot of people wonder, like, what can I do? and can I be that? you know, there's a lot of um, leadership thought leadership on sort of internal activism, which is just some small form of like, how do I slowly? you know make change in the company or an organization and one how do you find these organizations and two if you're currently not in one like uh do you have any thoughts on like how does one navigate that
2: yeah so i think in general it's important to align your own personal values with um with a mission and the conduct of the companies or the organization that you work for right I think if there's too much of a discrepancy between the mission of the company and, and your own values, then it's, it becomes very challenging over time. I'm sure some people manage, right? And they're prob- maybe very successful in, in changing the companies. But otherwise, you become separate from everyone else. But if you of
1: just just want to say something on what you're saying about like connecting with the vision and the mission of a company that makes perfect sense to me where you have this kind of philosophy of you know you can accept your part in your role to play and it doesn't have to be the most significant because you know that there's going to be a future payoff I think sometimes we feel you know we're in organizations where Like I've grown up with this sort of mentality of if it's meant to be, it's up to me. And I really love reading on behavioural psychology, for example, and I, you know, read a lot about the diffusion of responsibility or learnt helplessness or these kinds of things. So I think, you know, and and Ivan, we spoke about it before where, Valerie and I come from more individualistic cultures, whereas I think the Scandinavian cultures or Nordic cultures is more, there's a sense of collectivism. But in that collectivism, you feel as an individual empowered. And I think that's something that I really would like to reflect on more for myself, that maybe that's a skeptical way of looking at humanity when you're thinking about, if I don't do something, then no one else will. And obviously I don't sort of, have this carry this arrogance of, oh, I'm the only one to do, get make shit happen. So yeah I'm, yeah, I'm really reflecting on what you're saying right now and how that fits in for me.
2: Yeah, and you know, don't get me wrong. I think that we definitely need internal change champions, right? I think many companies or organizations can be more sustainable and the only people who can do that are the employees of that company. Right, they can get input from many others, but they're the ones who have to do it. And having instigators, having people who carry the flag, is super crucial. Right, uh, it can be tiring to be a flag bearer for for very long, but it's if you have the energy. Mm. I think for me the key point is to not sort of look for organizations that you can use to achieve your own values right mm. i think there are some people who perhaps want to, to save the climate or you know work for indigenous uh, people's rights but if you're just trying to go counter the interest of the organization because you have your own beliefs then um, it might be tenable for a while and you might you know start some things but it's uh, it's a very lonely very lonely road
0: yeah Mm -hmm. i think that's what comes down to it seems hard to say that there's no way around that because certainly there is but it certainly is a very lonely road as you say and sometimes heavier load to take on uh, than you can imagine and it comes back to this pushing the elephant up the mountain i suppose
2: yeah and you know if if everybody agrees that that elephant needs to be on top of the mountain and the leader group is there on top waiting for you then you know it's it's great but if they're all trying to push it down and you're trying to push it up, it's uh
0: Yeah. Few people in history have done
2: that. <laughs> yeah, very few people.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I don't <laughs> I know if this anecdote is working very well, but I think we no, uh, I, I love we're...
1: the anecdote. <laughs> I really like it. So I'm just like imagining being crushed <laughs> <laughs> by an elephant. <laughs> I that's uh That'll be our nightmares tonight. <laughs> Oh, like tusks chasing me. And, and, uh, no, I, I really like where you're going with it and it's making me think a lot. And as Valerie said, we have very much the tendency to be activists and, and we get pretty tired in our, uh, in our own ways from pushing and that's even in organisations or with clients, for example, where those ideals exist. And I think for a lot of our listeners, having that balance trying to find your equilibrium. That's what the whole being a modern idealist or pragmatic idealist is about. It's finding the equilibrium and everyone has a different journey, right, and a different context where they find that, uh, whether it's a middle ground or a narrative that makes sense to them, like you spoke about before, Ivan. That's a big part of the journey of really genuinely wanting to make an impact, but figuring out where, not where the limit is, but where it makes sense in your own life and with your own well being and livelihood in mind.
0: Yeah. So for all the change makers out there, you know, varying degrees, um, whether you're more on the, system intervention, like you're working inside the system or you're kind of coming from the outside and want to be more of an activist, you know, for all the change makers of varying degrees and those who hold different like philosophies in doing so, what is, what's a piece of advice that you would want to leave our listeners with?
2: Yeah, I'm a bit cautious about advice. You know, I share reflections, but my reflections might change next year. So
1: that's good. Uh, we I, like that. Yeah. <laughs> we, you we, can we come on be. back next year and just contradict <laughs> We totally yeah. embrace yeah, that. I look forward to that, time. actually.
2: It really is important to find your community. I think when I started out on the sustainability path, it was not very well trod. And having somebody to discuss with um, can be very, very good, especially if you're sort of a lone, lone star inside of a company trying to to drive change, then finding somebody you know, outside the company to spar with on uh, how do you do this effectively, where do the limits go. And somebody internally and a mentor who can um give you energy but also tell you like what should you stay away from and what is it not useful that you spend all your time trying to change
1: i think that's very sound reflections i don't know if um that's worth contradicting but you never know (laughs) i really really like those reflections ivan
0: 100% agree um i mean that was amazing uh Thank you so much for the insightful conversations and certainly grateful for, I mean, I would love actually this follow-up, whether you come back on or at least you can leave, I'll just chase you in person for a message. Love to hear what you think in time, but certainly grateful for that thought right now um, to find your community. And I think there's a lot of listeners who sit on different parts of that path right now. So I think... They can use that community, finding people to lean on so that you're not doing it alone. And you'll be remembered as the idealistic pragmatist. (laughs) And I took away a lot from that. I mean, patience and having the perseverance, the small things and, and believing in that. So I'm sure this is very helpful to our listeners. You rock. And until next time.
2: Thanks very much for having me on. If
0: you've enjoyed our podcast so far, do leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast and find us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Modern Idealist Podcast.